We now return to our discussion about methadone on bringing light into darkness, Monday news and analysis on the premier community radio station of the nation, 91.7 KOOP.org. But what methadone does, if properly dosed, is it sedates the withdrawal symptoms, but keeps you clear-minded so you can hold down a job. It doesn't require IV. It's an oral solution, and you show up each day or each I'm not sure how often they dose that, but it's a day, every day or two, and then you go off and do your thing, that type of thing. Um, right. But yeah, so these are the pain medications. There's others that we have not mentioned. And then lastly are the uh, hallucinogens, okay? And so the hallucinogens mm-hmm. are those drugs that cause hallucinations, and most people think of drugs like LSD. Right, not mushrooms. Mushrooms, but so... Let's just go to H-E-B and get mm-hmm. some mushroom. No, they're, they're, they're a certain type of mushroom. It's a, right. And the, and the psychoactive ingredient is psilocybin. So these are psilocybin mushrooms. And just to go back to LSD for a second, what I share with folks, you know, when you ask a class of people that, are, that I'm involved with and I really enjoy these classes, and I say, well, you know, how many ounces are there in a pound? And, you know, they'll all say, oh, 16, you know, so they know that, you know. Right. Um, and then you say, well, how many grams are there in an ounce? And, you know, most of them will say, well, 28 point whatever, you know. And you mm-hmm. go, yeah, okay, so you know that too, you know, and they'll laugh. And, and I say, well, how many micrograms mm-hmm. are there in a gram? Okay. And they'll say, you know, a mm-hmm. hundred, right? And I go, no. And, and, and I'll say a thousand, that would be pretty small, right? A thousandth of a gram. They say, yeah, but, right. but, I told them, but it's not a thousandth. A microgram is a hundred thousandth. And then they'll say, whoa, and that would be pretty small, right? And I go, well, wait a minute. No, it's not. It, a microgram literally is a millionth of a gram. That's what a microgram is. So mm-hmm. you're talking about a chemical LSD where you take 125 micrograms, 125 millionths of a gram, and it creates the most powerful world change for you imaginable for, you know, what, 8 to 12 hours. And I just suggest that, you know, a drug that powerful probably doesn't belong in your brain to begin with. And And for that many hours also. Because one thing is, you know, like you mentioned cocaine earlier. Cocaine is the type of substance that's very quickly metabolized, which also reinforces that addictive nature of it because you have to keep taking more. But then with hallucinogens, it lasts for hours and hours. And Mm -hmm. that's like your brain is invaded for at least eight hours. Right. And I think that's the point I try to make is just that something that it's like people don't mess with nitroglycerin, right? Because it'll blow to pieces if you don't handle it correctly. It's the kind of putting nitroglycerin in your brain. Really? I mean, should you? I don't mean to be alarmist. Plenty of people took it and have taken. I'm just saying it is a very, very powerful chemical that is measured Mm -hmm. in millions of a gram rather than in grams and such. Anyhow, so those are the major categories. And I guess when you talk about a drug like marijuana, most pharmacology textbooks will put that in the hallucinogen group. And really, that's not appropriate in my understanding and knowledge of studying the subject. Because if you're smoking pot and you're getting hallucinations, you're not smoking pot. There's something else yeah, probably in there. Yeah, there's something involved in that. Right, yeah, definitely right. Waste. Yeah, so, so and when you take marijuana you'll find that people's heart rates generally go up like almost like a stimulant, but very quickly they come down, you know, so it's not a stimulant, it's not a depressant. It almost needs its own category. Right. And also your blood sugar levels drop, hence 
having to eat more to kind of wear off the effect. So, yeah, I think it has like a completely different category, or yeah. at least it should. It should, and I don't know about the blood, you know, that, that that's new to me. For some people, it may have, you know, that's the thing about drugs, right? Like, let's go back to our first thing I talked about it last week, that we are, as individuals, we have an individual biochemistry that is unique to everyone else, but similar to everyone else, right? So like 99% or more of our biochemistries are the same, and it's that 1% or less that creates these differences. So a drug may have, they call it a paradoxical effect, when it has an effect on me that's different than most everybody else. It can happen because just like I'm allergic or maybe allergic to peanut butter, as we said last week, or peanuts, Mm -hmm. you know, you're not. So I'm not so sure on the sugar deal on how that affects the, you know, on the bell curve, how many people that Mm -hmm. would affect. But yeah, the the take-home message is this. You have a brain chemistry that has a unique balance, okay? And whenever you put any chemical into your system, it changes that balance and your body and your brain will adapt to it just like anything else. And that's what neuro adaptation is, is that if you take an outside chemical long enough, and I'm talking about prescription drugs too. Sometimes people have to take certain drugs and the drug itself can create side effects. Then you don't know if the underlying condition is being created by the drug or by an underlying condition, if that makes sense. Right. Right. And so sometimes people need to take drugs, but they need to be careful with them and they need to have somebody that knows what they're about, that's coaching them, their physician, their psychiatrist or doctor that's more of a holistic approach where there's also Mm -hmm. therapies involved. Exactly. But anyhow, so that's a little bit about the different drug categories. I hope that addresses that. Yeah, that was very concise and very informative. But also you use the word pharmacology a lot. So mm-hmm. I kind of want to go over that again and kind of give us a more comprehensive definition of that. And how do we talk about, because pharmacology, you know, kind of a fancy word. Um, and how do we talk about that to people that might not necessarily be familiar with this type of verbiage. Well, I would keep it simple. I think pharmacology is a study of how the body processes drugs. There's like pharmacokinetics, which is how the body actually breaks down drugs. And there's, so again, it goes back to our discussion that you have a chemistry within your, inside your body, a unique balance of chemistries, right? It's an amazing thing that getting back to the magical nature of the human body, you have this thing called homeostasis, where the body mm-hmm. seeks to maintain, and this is not something that just we have, all animals have it. If, we, if our body gets too hot, what do we do? We start sweating, right? Do you tell your body, hey, I'm getting hot, start sweating? No, it just does it. Uh, the same thing with shivering. If your body gets too cold, you start shivering. That's the way your body warms up. You go to the bathroom, you pee out a certain amount of water. There's hormones that tell you how much water your body should get rid of, and, and the body, and a healthy body accommodates that. Now, when you drink alcohol, guess what? Alcohol affects that diuretic hormone and does it in a way in which you end up peeing more than you should, which then can create, if you drink too much, what a dehydration, which is generally associated, we believe, with the main side effects that come with a hangover, the dehydration side, at least. So when you talk about the pharmacology, I think that's 
the issue. I think also, if we can maybe move into the brain issue, I think that's this balance that we talk about in the body is also manifested in the brain. And we said that drugs are not magical, that they only mimic, block, or facilitate a natural brain potential. If you were to look at how, for instance, cocaine, its effect in the brain, that is, in your brain, you have like 100 billion brain cells. I, I don't know how they came up with the number, but if you look in all of these neurology books, they all come up with about 100 billion, okay? Right. And these neurons, they don't touch each other, but they communicate between each other within our central nervous system. And the way they communicate are through what's called neurotransmitters, okay? You may have heard of that word before. And these things are things like dopamine. You may have heard of serotonin, norepinephrine, have you ever heard of epinephrine? A lot of people haven't, but yeah. you know these yeah. epipens or whatever. They, it's the same thing. Adrenaline is epinephrine. It's just a street name for epinephrine, if you will. You have GABA. Anyhow, you have some of these neurotransmitters are excitatory. They excite. Others are inhibitory. They inhibit. So you got this electrical kind of balance in, in your brain of, of excitation and inhibition, okay? And to communicate these different cells in different parts of your brain will maybe use different neurotransmitters. And they, they come from inside the cell, from inside the vesicle of the cell mm-hmm. is where they construct it. So you have this dopamine, let's say, for instance, getting created in a neuron's vesicle. It then is released out of the cell into a gap between the two cells, which is called a synapse, okay? Right. People may have heard of that word, S-Y-N-A-P-S-E. And that synapse is where all of this stuff kind of goes on. It goes across the synapse, and on the receiving cell, there are these proteins that are called receptor sites. And these receptor sites are kind of like the lock on the door that you have in your front of your house, or I have in the front of my house. I have a key. It'll unlock my Mm -hmm. door, but it won't unlock your door, okay? It's the same thing in your brain. You have these receptors that will receive a certain type of chemical configuration. In this case, it's dopamine. It lands, right. on, it lands on that receptor site. It engages with that receptor site, and it has an effect on the receiving cell, which is it opens up these channels from the outside of the cell to the inside of the cell. So b- bear with me. These are called ion channels. And ion is just a high-dollar name for an electrically charged particle. You have positive ions. You have negative ions, like you have... I think potassium is a K is a positive ion. Chloride yep, is a yep. negative ion. Sodium is a positive sodium ion. Sodium positive. Right. Yeah. So yeah, I have all this positive and negative stuff out here in the synaptic area. And these ion channels open up. They flow into the receiving cell. It changes the electrical composition mm-hmm. of the cell. And it sends a, an electrical charge to the next cell. And it just repeats itself and sends down a synaptic pathway. Does that make sense? So that's what, yeah. that's what goes on in your neural transmittal system, right? And so what cocaine does, let me go back to synapse. So you have all this extra dopamine sitting out there because some do- so dopamine is already on the receptor sites ex- creating the excitation, right? Mm-hmm. All the extra dopamine in a certain period of time will then get reuptaked back into the original cell. So just like, you know, you had dinner last night and you had leftovers, and you put it in your refrigerator. Think of it that way. You have this reuptake where it reuptakes everything that's not used to save for the next transmission. 
Well, all that. Yeah, it's a form of recycling in the body. Exactly, and and all that cocaine does when you take cocaine is it blocks reuptake in that part of your brain. Right. So now you have this excitation going on, and when that molecule wears off of dopamine, the uptake has been blocked, so you have all extra dopamine to jump on, and you have excitation, 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 excitation. So the last, right. the last thing in this deal here to understand is there's a term that's called adaptation. You've heard of that in biology, right? What, mm-hmm. is, what does adaptation mean? A way to adjust to your surroundings, basically. Um, I'm not sure if that's a... No, that's exactly right. That's exactly... (laughs) In biology, what Darwin talked about, you you, you adapt or you perish as a species. You have to adapt to your environment. We have the same thing that goes on in our brain. It's called neuro for neuron for brain, neuroadaptation. What happens is your receptor sites on the receiving cell say, you know what, there is so much damn dopamine out here, we don't need all these receptor sites. It actually sucks in a bunch of the receptor sites and neuroadapts to say, hey, we don't need it. So now I'm driving home after one of my classes and I'm a big cocaine user and I have a little powdered cocaine in my uh, uh, little baggie in my shirt and the police pull me over, they grab my cocaine, they say, off to jail you go again, Pedro. And so uh, now I'm sitting in jail without any cocaine, and with very few receptor sites, how am I going to feel in about 24 to 48 hours? Right. That's the withdrawal. You know, you start feeling the withdrawal effect and the very, very powerful withdrawal, and it causes the cravings, okay? And what happens is, over time, while I'm sitting in jail, guess what? My brain cells will adapt again. They'll neuroadapt to try to create more receptor sites but in the meantime i am jonesing i am really really wanting Mm -hmm. that drug so in a nutshell that's how these drugs they don't have any miracle qualities of their own they really just kind of hijack and mimic uh, or block or facilitate a natural brain potential right and you mentioned uh homeostasis previously and that is something that all species experience to some capacity right but can you talk a little bit more about, I guess, since we all have homeostasis, what distinguishes humans and, I guess, interactions with different drugs and whatnot from other species, and how is our brain ecology different from that? Yeah. Well, that's a great question. I think when you talk about what differentiates the human species from all other species, I mean, we're all part of an animal kingdom, right? We're all part of a wildly amazing earth and our species is distinguished i would argue from all other species by the capacities of our human brain that this is what's really magical is our human brain so we mentioned earlier the brain stem when when you if if you were to draw a picture of the central nervous system you would have your spine entering your skull the bottom of your skull in the back Okay, and the first thing mm-hmm. it that neural tissue uh, opens up into is called your brainstem, and that brainstem right. is what all animals have. We have it; all animals have it, and that brainstem also has, as part of it, a pleasure pathway, a reward center. Okay, so for instance, guess what? Uh, when any animal has sex, it is highly rewarding. It feels really, really good, and why? And that's of course in order to promote the species to reproduce, 
right? When you have hunger and thirst, uh, just like a dog or an animal, they have hunger or thirst. It's the way the body tells you that you need to eat or to drink. We don't need to know that because we'll get to that in a second. But animals, Mm -hmm. if they didn't get thirsty or hungry, they would just, they would die because they wouldn't eat or drink, you know, that type of thing. And by the way, the reward center is where most of this drug abuse occurs in that part of the pleasure pathway. And it just eventually Mm -hmm. just kind of blows up your pleasure pathway in ways that are not good and can cause a lot of problems down the road. But that aside, what we're talking about now is just basic brain neurology. And above all of that circuitry that we just talked about, among other things, of course, is your cerebral cortex. And that is the mm-hmm. thinking part of the brain. And when you look at the human brain, our cerebral cortex is huge compared to the rest of the components of our brain. In other words, there is no animal in the world that has a higher ratio of cerebral cortex to the rest of the brain than the human being does. So think about it this way. When you watch the Discovery Channel, how quick is it before an animal that's just newborn will be up on its feet? Right. Much quicker than humans oftentimes. Well, absolutely. They're, and, and they're up on their feet quickly, right? Because part of it is to just survival. Right. If you're not mobile, your chances of right. your mother being able to protect you or whatever is minimal to begin with, that type of thing. But when you look at the human being, when we're born, literally our head is 40% of our body of weight. Our weight. You know, yeah. when you see any, anyone that's been a mother knows that, right? It just about will kill you, <laughs> right? And a kabam, right. out comes a huge head and, you know, the little newborn. And, you know, and the, the first, little body. <laughs> yeah, really. They got the little feet, the little <laughs> legs, the little everything. But they got this big old head, you know, and, and they can't yeah. move the head. You know, it's like, hey, I can't move my head. You have to pick up that baby with, with your hand behind the head. The neck can't hold that thing up for weeks. But the reason their head is so big is what? Is because of the cerebral cortex. Okay, Mm -hmm. they have this huge cerebral cortex. By the time now, fast forward to now, you're an adult. Now your brain is about two to three percent of your body weight. If your brain and head was as big proportionally to your body as when you were born, you wouldn't be able to walk through door jams. You know, your head would get stuck. Right? It's a fascinating thing. A A newborn baby. We are the most helpless creature for, what, four years maybe at least. I don't know if Tarzan is a myth or not, but, (laughs) you know, that you have zero chance of survival up until about age four or so as a child. But as an animal, you know, almost immediately you have that capability. And it all has to do with this amazing thing called your cerebral cortex. It's the ability that we have to create what we imagine, right? Most animals, like we said, are instinctual and do things that way. I mean, look, raccoons are really smart. They can break into your house and to your refrigerator. But who invented air conditioning? That was a human brain that figured all this out. That's a miracle thing, you know, that you could create Mm -hmm. these types of inventions. That's a cerebral cortex product that no other animal can really match. So when you think about it, lastly, I just want to indicate when you look at the physiology of the brain, right? And I'll make this quick because we're about out of time. So your spine comes up into to your skull. Your skull has some 22 different bones. Inside your skull, which mm-hmm. is protecting your brain, are two or three linings of tissues. One of them is called meninges. And for those of you that are not familiar with meninges, perhaps you've heard of meningitis. 
Itis is a suffix, meaning the inflammation of the meninges. But anyhow, you have these three layers of tissue that insulate the brain from the skull, and then you have your cerebral spinal fluid that comes up through your spine into your brain and, and, and actually essentially makes your brain like a little buoy or exactly. You know, in yeah. fact, that's what your brain is. It's it's buoyant. And lastly, the movie Concussion talked about football injuries because you had the brain. They put a helmet on you, right? But if you're a kid or a adult playing football, running full speed and you run into a linebacker and a safety, you're running, what, a world-class athlete, maybe 20 miles per hour or 22 miles per hour, all of a sudden you stop on a dime, well, that buoying brain you're just, you just described goes slamming into the front of your skull, you know, and you do this time in and time out, and you find out that the life expectancy of NFL football players is significantly, I think it's in the 60s, you know, a full 10, right. 15 years less than what you would expect for somebody that does not do that type of trauma to their brain, okay? So the same thing with drugs. You know, you should treat the brain as a sacred ecology. Take drugs when you need them. Don't take them when you don't need them, that type of thing. Right. Right, and also going back to talking about the cerebral cortex. So essentially... The, I guess, physiology behind the cerebral cortex is the same for everyone unless there's some underlying illness, you know, genetics, Mm -hmm. stuff like that. But what is different is which pathways are like ways of communication in the brain and which neurons we use more, which tracks we use more Mm -hmm. changes. And that especially changes with drug addictions and drug misuse. You start to communicate differently. Different paths are more used. For some, that may be that you're more impulsive. For some, that may be that you react differently to different kinds of substances based off of the classes of drugs we talked about today. So in a way, humans are very much related in that way, but it's all so variable once drugs come into play. Right. Well, that's kind of the nurture nature thing, you know, what you bring into the environment, into your brain versus how it's set up to begin with. I'll just say this that whenever you learn something new, you're developing a new neural pathway. You don't really, you don't really develop new brain cells, okay? Right. What you right. do is you develop new neural pathways. So someone that has a stroke, right, that means blood supply stops getting to a part of my brain. That means oxygen doesn't get to those cells. After a certain period, a short period of time, they die. So now I can't use the left side of my body, but through therapy, my remaining brain cells can reconnect in a way to kind of create a lot of that movement potential back and stuff. And so the everything that we do, our, our neural path, whatever you do well, you've done it for so long that you've created a pathway, right? So whether it's music, right. but bad habits and good habits create pathways. If I have a bad habit I've been doing for ages, that's why they say it's really tough to teach an old dog new tricks because you have, and that's what right. recovery is, is that you have to develop new pathways, new ways of thinking, new ways of behavior, all of those things to replace those old ways or those old ways will jump back into the deal. But we, we are just about out of time. In the last minute or so, I'm going to let you wrap this up. Right. So I also don't want to or like end on a really bad note. The brain is neuroplastic, how, what you mentioned. Stroke patients can recover. Drug addicts can recover. People that have misused drugs can recover. It's just a matter of learning about brain ecology and what you've been talking about today and learning how it works and that our brain is truly, truly a magical thing and it is a host and you can 
change, I guess, how you use it. So to wrap it up, this mini-series is called Our Addictive Culture, Chemical Use and Misuse and the Magical Host, the Human Brain and Body. And we will be doing a series on this, so there are more episodes to come. Pedro, I want to thank you for all this valuable information. It's been great talking to you. Well, thank you for the conversation, and and I appreciate you ending on the note on recovery, by the way. It's a beautiful thing. Recovery, there's all of these principles of recovery that I think are revolutionary, quite frankly. Principles of vigorous honesty, vigorous responsibility, humility, and it goes on and on and on. So there is a great greener grass on the other side, so to speak, for those people that are struggling with addictions. Thank you for your inputs. Thanks. And we'll see you next week. Don't be late. Coming up next, do not go anywhere unless you're not on koop.org right now. Switch on over to the internet if you're on the FM dial to hear Emo Diaries with co-op's very own Stephanie at the Disco. I can't wait. And we go out as we do every week with Land of Naivety. Bye.